Hey, everybody. It is really good to be back with you. Man, I have been adventuring uh, on the other side of the planet uh, in Israel for the last week and a half, and I got to tell you, it was a profound experience. I would love to go into great detail about it. I'll give you one story about... um, about what being there is like. I think sometimes it gets mistaken going to the Holy Land as almost like a a pilgrimage or as though that is a particularly holy place. I don't think we have that in the gospel. I think that the the location of the temple uh, has moved ever since Jesus. So it's not that I go and I'm standing on a particularly holy place, but there is something that happens to the way I read the scriptures when I'm standing in Caesarea Philippi And I see that I'm in this uh, gulch surrounded by a very tall cliff. And there were uh, temples carved into and out of this cliff. And they were built out. And there was a temple to the god Pan. And there was a temple to the god Zeus. And there's probably 10 other different temples to the god of goats and the god of this and the god of that. And in the scriptures, it's recorded that Jesus takes a three-day journey. And, and, and with Peter there, he says, to him, he says to him that famous question, who do you say I am? You know? And now that's a great verse, and it's an awesome thing. But for a guy like me, I read Caesarea Philippi, and I'm like, eh, it's a town somewhere or whatever. I don't know. But when you're standing there and you realize Jesus asked this question with all of these temples around him, Oh, it was a profound moment. This is the place people traveled to pay homage to and worship many gods. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? So there were moments like that all throughout, traveling on the Sea of Galilee, seeing Capernaum and a synagogue where Jesus would have taught, seeing Tiberius across the way. Pastor Daniel preached on uh, the story where Jesus heals the demoniac. And as we're driving through that exact countryside, our bus driver says, yeah, I get a hunting permit every year to shoot hogs over here because there's so many wild pigs running around and nobody around here wants to eat them. So, you know, it's like even today, 2,000 years later, they still have a a lot of hogs on that side of the Galilee Lake. Anyway, it's really good to be back here with you. And I was uh, telling you at the last time that we hung out, I told you that on the 19th, so today, I wanted to talk about the vision, if you will, or the goal behind our desire as a pastor and elder team to change our grounding documents. Now, our grounding documents are our constitution, our bylaws, and our doctrinal statement. And that's a big body of text. I'm not going to be able to detail it out on a Sunday morning for you. So what I want to do is talk about the absolute core, the big the, the, the most simplized, that's a word, uh, the most simple and clear sort of vision, what we're trying to get at. And the thing we're trying to drive at, I don't believe is something we're trying to drive at. I think it's something God has, has awakened in me. He's awakened in each of the pastors and elders, and he said, this congregation needs to move like many other congregations in our country and around the world we need to move in a, in a new direction. So I want to talk about what that is today. That's my goal. And if you're like me, 
having technical kind of conversations about documents is just kind of like, I'm not super interested in it. So I don't want to do that. It's not a technical conversation. I do want to preach from the Word on a very important principle that I think Jesus gives us. And my hope is that even if, if you're not interested in those documents, that this would still be a blessing to you and that the text we're going to read and the story we're going to look at would actually help to spark some really good thinking and living from Jesus within you, okay? So that's what I, that's what I want to do today. I want to pray before we begin because this is really significant. Uh, we're an 85-plus-year-old church congregation, we're in a, in a realm of Christianity we would maybe call Protestant evangelicalism. And to move away from our doctrinal statement is no small thing. I think in some ways I've underestimated how significant that is. But I think it's good, and I'm going to show you why. So pray with me, and then uh, we'll jump in. Father, we love you, and we're here because of that. We know that we love you, uh, but you first loved us, and that everything we're about is really dependent on you. You're our creator. You're our God. You are our savior, but even more than that, you're the example of what true life is in this kingdom that you're building. I pray that you would help me to preach well. I pray that you would help us be a body, tightly bound to each other in love and grace and submitted to you as our head, as our leader, as our king. Help us to become that every time we meet and every time we take a breath. Help us to become your people more and more each day. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Okay, so our focus this morning is going to be on our attitude toward others. What is our attitude toward other people? How do we think about people who are sinful? What's my impression? How do I, when I run into somebody who's really sinful, maybe making bad decisions, what's, what do I feel? What do I think? What's my attitude toward that person? How do I treat people who hold different kinds of beliefs than I do? Or maybe they don't yet understand the beliefs that I hold. What do I do with somebody who, who thinks very differently about the right way to do baptism, and thinks very differently about how communion should be taken? What, is, what, is, what are some of the knee-jerk reactions that I have in those moments? Maybe the most important is, what is our posture as a community? How do we posture ourselves before our fellow Portlanders? How would our neighbors assess our presence in the life of our community? Do we say, God is all-knowing? Or do we say, we are all-knowing? Do we say, God have mercy on each of us because we are each foolish and we are each sinful? And we are each trying our best to follow Jesus by responding to the Spirit of God. Is that our posture? Or do we say, God, thank you for giving us the correct answers, unlike those other denominations, unlike all those other congregations. 
And thank you for not making us like those who don't follow you as well or as biblically as we do. What is our posture? I say this often, and I say it again, and it's important that I say this right now. I love you. There is a love inside me that God has put that I think is similar to the love that I had for my daughter Annabelle when I first saw her. I have no idea why I would love this <laughs> this infant, and yet God creates this overwhelming love inside of me for her. I'm not suggesting you're infants, but I, I'm saying the source of my love for you comes from God, and I res- respect you as my brothers and sisters, and I regard you as fellow believers who are standing shoulder to shoulder with me trying to pursue Christ. So I do not see myself as your king or as your ruler. Those titles are for Jesus. I see myself as a pastor that God has gifted to help lead this congregation, okay? I want to say all that up front because I want to ask you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say here and to regard me as your fellow, not as somebody who thinks I have the right to tell you what to do. What I want to do is expose the scriptures to you and invite you to see what I think God is telling us to do. That's my hope this morning, to help build us up and to strengthen us in Christ, okay? We have recently been talking about some of Jesus' parables. Uh, We're in Mark, and so we've been walking through uh, some of the parables in Mark. But today, I want to look at another parable, but it'll be in the gospel according to Luke, the way that he records it. So if you would, I'd like you to turn with me to the gospel according to Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 18. Just kind of put your finger there for a second. I want to say a few things about parables. The first one is this. Parables, parables bring us right up to the edge and invite us to peer into the kingdom of God. Okay, so through the parables, we've talked about the things that parables do and how they work, but today I want you to think about a parable as bringing you right up to the edge of the kingdom of God with Jesus saying, look, look at what this kingdom is, and and maybe saying something like this, imagine a world like this, okay? A parable is inviting us to imagine a world like this. And and as we've already seen, parables don't really soft-pedal anything. We've noticed how Jesus uses dramatic, attention-grabbing sort of images to kind of jolt us out of the places that are comfortable and normal for us. The parables are impactful in that way. He's saying, pay attention. I'm not here to tell you, hey, you have it all perfect. (laughs) Instead, I'm saying, pay attention. I am trying to jolt you out of where you're at to think differently than you're used to thinking. Because the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of this world. It operates in a very different way, sometimes radically different way. So Jesus, in this parable we're going to read, he's going to use harsh, very harsh stereotypes, and they're going to wake us up to the realities in his kingdom. This is a world where our most natural and normal social customs get changed. It's a world, it's a place It's a way of life, this kingdom is, where some of the most basic attitudes that we have get totally reversed. 
flipped on their head, where they're exposed for what they are, and then they're transformed into something beautiful, something Christ-like. So keep your finger in that page. There's two more. I want to give two warnings about this parable. It's a pretty intense parable. I'm trying to build up some drama here. It's very intense. Here's the first warning. This is not a parable about Jesus versus the Jews. I can, I can find lots of places where this parable gets used that way, and I don't think that that's it. The stereotypes that Jesus will use here are punchy and they're shocking, but you're going to see in the very first line of the parable that this word is written to, and I'll quote, it's written to people who are confident in their own righteousness and they look down on everybody else, okay? So we can't turn this into some sort of exhaustive statement about all, of, all Jews everywhere. What Jesus says here about the Pharisees' attitude is something that I think we, can, we have all encountered in other Christians as well as we've lived in this world. So it's not about Jesus versus the Jews. And here's the second warning. By the time we get to the end of the story, if we're paying attention, we're going to wish Jesus had never told the story, okay? We're going to wish that he had not told the story. It packs a twisting punch that is just, just be prepared, okay? It's pretty intense right at the end. So Luke 18, we're in verse 9, and I'm going to read this for us. Luke 18, verse 9, this is Jesus speaking. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, the robbers the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I receive. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood back at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now here's Jesus' interpretation of the parable, verse 14. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, who's saying have mercy, this man went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a big overturning, isn't there? Those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. It's this man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who goes home justified before God. That's a loaded statement. There it is, classic Jesus, okay? Totally inverting the social order, reversing it. He changes the DNA of how we think and how we operate. Jesus says, imagine a world where a man or a woman who practices simple, repentant humility is the good guy. And the person who is proud of his or her achievements 
gets exposed. It's a world where the frauds and the self-righteous fakes are exposed for what they really are. Imagine this kind of world. This is the kind of world we're to bring into our families, where honest humility is respected and honored. It's seen as a strength and a goodness. It's the kind of reality we're to bring into our own personal lives. And he wants us to bring this kind of heart into our church communities as well. I'm confident of that. This attitude, this way of life into our church atmosphere. In Jesus' parable here, he uses this stereotypical religious elite sort of image, the Pharisee. And he's a self-righteous person, and he looks at his life, and he says, yeah, I think and I act correctly, just as I should. In fact, I am better, and I am more correct. I am more correct. I am more right. I'm more righteous than the other people, like this loser of a tax collector sitting over here. I'm glad I'm not like that. I thank you that I am better than other people. That's the Pharisee's attitude. You might say, well, what does this Pharisee think he's so correct about? Why is he so stoked on himself? Well, he knows the right way to live, and he has the correct morals, and so he knows all of the correct ways to think and act. Unlike those lessers around me, he's believing, I correctly fast twice a week. I think that's probably on Mondays and Thursdays. I fast twice a week, and I correctly give the tithes and so forth. I'm actually pretty awesome. I really am. Thank you, God. But Jesus has given us a little clue here. The attentive reader is going to say, hmm, was that really the drill? Did we, or we, are, am I supposed to be t- fasting on Monday and thir- twice a week? What's going on here? There's our first little clue. This Pharisee says, I, I do this, man. Look at how awesome I am. And then any Jewish mind might say, but God only ever told the Jews to fast one day a year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. So where's this fasting of twice a week, 104 times a year? Well, that's something that the Pharisee has thought fit to do. He has wanted to discipline his life in a way where he fasts twice a week. And I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize later that that's not necessarily bad. Peter will call us to be self-disciplined in our lives, won't he? So this Pharisee is self-disciplined, and yet notice what he's doing. I've added on a new rule for myself, and I do it really well, and you don't, so you're the worst. That's an interesting progression. Notice another one. Tithing, as God instructs us to tithe. He absolutely does. And yet, the way this is worded is really interesting. He, he tithes from everything that he has uh, received or everything that he has. So the tithe is to come from the produce, and it's very likely that out of the produce grown, there already has been a tithe given. And the Pharisees were notorious for tithing upon things that were already tithed upon, like double, triple tithing, to say, look at how awesome I am at tithing, even down to the point of tithing uh, herbs and spices sometimes. I'll jump to another text for an example. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is 
we might say being even a little bit more punchy. The parable is maybe a, a softer way to say it. Here Jesus gets right after him. Woe to you, he says, teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You hypocrites, you give a tenth, so you tithe, your spices and your mint, your dill, your cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat while you swallow a camel, okay? The Pharisee is sitting there and they're like, man, what's important here is the purity of our soup. Uh Uh-oh, there's a little gnat in the purity of our soup. Let's do everything we can to get this little gnat out of our soup so it's nice and pure. Meanwhile, we're choking on a camel and we're so foolish we don't even realize it. That's a pretty punchy statement, he says. You try to figure out this gnat while you're choking on a camel. You're patting yourselves on the back for following a rule that you yourselves invented. You nitpick about less important details, and as you do, you end up missing the whole point. You're blind, all while you congratulate yourselves on being enlightened. It's no small statement from Jesus, and you can bet that folks were really irritated by what he was saying. <laughs> they, they weren't saying, oh, this is wonderful. What are you talking about? Now, jump back with me to the parable in Luke. Jesus is talking about a man who has elevated himself above others, who believes that God, and surely others, should be very impressed with his good record of correct and righteous service. And Jesus really condemns such an approach for what it is. It's an attitude of prideful condescension toward other people. This guy has handpicked a few religious customs that extend well beyond God's actual instructions. Certainly, I think we can, we can say, he's picking and choosing the ones that he likes the most. And then he's really impressed with himself. So much so that he doesn't even see them as his own customized requirements. He sees himself as so good that the things he loves must just by default be what God loves and what God wants. It's just a one-to-one correlation for him. And I'd ask, have you ever encountered this in your walk, in this world, as you've tried to navigate through church life and life together? Have you ever run into this kind of attitude? If you don't hold my same position on this debatable issue, then I thank God that I am not like you. One of those people who doesn't care about the Bible as much as I do. I think it comes out in some really typical ways. One could be, say, clothing or hair. Let's say, we might say on one hand, thank you, God, that I am not like one of those people who dishonors you on Sunday mornings with casual dress. I am much better than that. On the flip side, we might say, I'll thank you, God, that I am not like one of those pretentious people who thinks that wearing nice clothes on Sunday morning somehow honors you. I wear casual clothes. I'm much better. Notice the parable is not coming down on tithing. 
It's not coming down on self-discipline. It's coming down on the attitude. It has everything to do with attitudes. It's that attitude of the things that I do make me better than you. What about politics or social issues? Thank you, God, that I am not like those people who voted for or who didn't vote for. (laughs) What about theological issues? Thank you, God, that I am not like those Christians who practice baptism that way or communion like that, which real Bible believers like me know is sinful. I thank you that I am not like those sinful people. Well, this is getting a little heavy, I know. But it's going to get heavier and better, I promise. So here we go. I think this naturally brings us to this doctrinal statement question. And this doctrinal statement question extends well beyond central Bible. So I want to try to talk in principles here. It brings us to that, and we might say right up front, what are they for? What is a doctrinal statement for? I think the, I mean, it kind of self-defines. It's a statement about our doctrine, held by a particular local church. And they're meant not only for ourselves, but for our neighbors. And I would say if, if we as a community are making a statement, by and large, we're making a statement to others aren't we? Yes, we can make statements to each other, and I think they do that, but by and large, it's a statement to those who are outside of our community. One assessment might see a doctrinal statement as something that's useful for teaching, and I think that that assessment comes more from a desire for efficiency than truth. So it's definitely easier to teach from a bulleted list But I don't think we use our doctrinal statement for teaching as much as we use the Bible itself for teaching. Does that make sense? The doctrinal statement is more of a highly summarized, bulleted list of very terse beliefs. So I think that what it by and large is saying is, here is what we as a community believe. Now, I think that right right there, you can see where we start to get into some difficult area. Because do we as a community believe that these 13 very short statements are what we believe? Or do we as a community live according to the entirety of the scriptures? I think Paul's words, the whole Bible is useful for teaching, kind of rings loudly in my ears at that point. And so a church has about, I think, about three options on what to do in terms of a doctrinal statement. Here's the first option. We can write down our own core beliefs. We can say, here's our community, and we're going to, these are the things that we regard as our core beliefs, okay? That's one. Or they can take up a doctrinal statement from their denomination. So that's kind of the same idea, but it's broader. So we just operate according to the doctrinal statement of this or that denomination, So that's the second option. And the third option is they can use one that comes from the overall historic church, not located in any particular local body and not located in any particular denomination. I think there's probably a fourth, but I think those three are about the three major ways you could 
figure out what to do as far as a doctrinal statement. And I would ask you out of those three, which one do you think that the scriptures point us toward? One of which being this very parable. And not just the parable, but the overall witness of the scriptures. Even the psalm that Pastor Daniel read this morning and many other texts like it. Is God inviting us toward identifying ourselves by our distinctives from the community of his people? Or is he inviting us to see how we are bound to his community of people? I think that I think it's the latter. I think that he wants us to see ourselves as being together with one another and all believers under the headship of Jesus. So, do the scriptures teach us to say we belong to an American church that differs from other churches on how we interpret many things? And those distinctives define who we are, showing how we think and act more correctly than other believers. Of course, our doctrinal statement does not say we're better than everybody else. There's no wording like that. But there is something that is conveyed in a message that says, here's what we believe, and for you to belong here, that's a requirement. That's a very bold statement. Or would the scriptures teach us to say we belong to a 2,000-year-old church that has differed on how to interpret many things But what we have all agreed upon is the supremacy of Christ. Our distinctives don't define us, but our belongingness to Jesus makes us one. I think that is what the scriptures have always been teaching us to do. Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, Father, may they be one with each other as Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Why? So that the world would know that you sent me. Even, even though my two years here, so on Easter, when I, when I preach on Easter Sunday, that'll mark two years of being a lead pastor at Central Bible, it has shown me that we as a congregation are far more interested in our unity with each other and Christ than we are in separating ourselves out as the best Christians in town. That has been my experience with you. I have not experienced high-level arrogance or the sort of idea that says, I am totally correct and everybody else is wrong. I haven't seen that. But I think that our doctrinal statement might be in a different realm. We as a team of pastors and elders have recognized that that statement and even our other grounding documents unfortunately reflect a different kind of attitude. Without actually saying this words, these, these kinds of words, I think this is a, an underlying statement that comes out, not just, hear me out now, not just the wording of our doctrinal statement or the verses we choose to reference, but that it's self-created and has many fine nuanced points. The fact that it does that, I think, says this. We will write down our own core beliefs, We want to state our doctrinal beliefs that make us different from the rest of Christianity. And when we say this is what's correct, we also say that if you don't have the same opinion, you are wrong. 
Our current statement has 13 different articles, and we cite more than 83 proof texts to prove that those are the correct interpretations. We take a clear stand on how the end times are going to play out. We know that. We take a clear stand on how the Bible should be interpreted dispensationally. That's in section M. We take a firm position on the interpretational and theological debates that Christians have been discussing for 2,000 years. And I think if we're going to be honest, I think that it says we know the correct answers to some pretty fine points. And if you want to belong, then you need to have those same answers as well. That's intense. I suspect that that has been some of the some of the source of our congregation's sufferings over many years, and many, many Protestant evangelical churches like it. The gospel that Jesus gives us is something that is very non-malleable. But some of these other fine points we have actually raised to to the level so high that we would include them in a statement with the gospel and say these are all similarly important. So last week, I am, I am out at the Dead Sea. That's wild. Or, I'm, it is a salty body of water. Oh my goodness. I'm at the Dead Sea, and we are exploring the ruins of a community we believe that a sect of Judaism called the Essenes lived in. This would not be a place I would want to live. My goodness, it was hot. This is down in the desert, Dead Sea. Nothing even grows in the Dead Sea. And we're looking at these ruins of this community. Now, you guys have maybe heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is the community that had those scrolls. And so there's 12 caves, and they found them in these different caves. It's really cool. Well, these Essenes had a sectarian mindset. And what they believed was that they were the children of the true light. We learn this from one of their squirrels, or several of their scrolls have writings about their own community and what it meant to live within it. And it's fascinating, but they believed we were the children of the true light, separate and better from all of the rest of the Jewish community. They looked at the temple and they said, it's corrupt. They looked at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and every other sect and said, corrupt, 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 corrupt. Not corrupt, which is good. We were the last remaining true believers, and they were escaping that corruption by going out (laughs) to where nobody would want to live. I mean, I wouldn't want to live there. And they had crazy rules and regulations. So you had a three-year entry period where you're just submitting yourself to the leader of the crew before you even get an answer on if you can belong or not. I think one of those years was spent in total silence. And when you're there, looking at the ruins... This, this same thing pops up all over the place. So imagine the ruins were the size of this room, and it's much bigger than that. But if we just took a cross-section this size, I bet you there'd be 20 mikvahs. You know what a mikvah is? A mikvah, it's a little gross, where they're at. A mikvah is this deep pit with stairs going down to it. And then they made these little clay lines, walls, so you wouldn't accidentally touch anybody on the way down to the water. And then any time you ever did anything, you had to go down into the mikvah and wash. So before you went to temple, you had to wash. Before you'd, There's a million things that required you to go down and do a ritual cleansing. 
So we know from finding these mikvahs all over the place that this was a highly religious community, a Jewish community that really upheld ritual cleansing washing. I say it's kind of gross because there's no in or out aqueducts for the pits of water. You know, do the math on that. The water's not moving. (laughs) It just sits there all the time. It's like, I mean, it's probably good for the earth or something, but I, personally, I like to change out my bath water from time, from time to time, you know. Anyway, here's this community. They look at the rest of their Jewish cohort and say, wrong, 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 wrong. We're the children of the true light. Now, Jesus, I have said before, today, he's never going to tell us to stop disciplining our lives. In Peter's second letter in the opening chapter, he talks about the goodness of adding to our faith. And he adds characteristics like self-discipline, self-control, these kinds of things. That's good, he says. We have the freedom to add things to our faith, even ways of believing. We, We interpret it this way. I'm not suggesting that any one of our doctrinal statement beliefs is somehow clearly wrong. I wouldn't be here if that was the case. What I am suggesting, however, is that if we use our disciplines or we use the particular interpretations we have to posture ourselves above others, especially in a way that says, you can't belong here, we have gone well beyond the pages of the Bible and departed from the simplicity of the gospel. In the parable that we looked at, Jesus is telling us to never think, to never think that we are better than others because of the things that we think or do, especially when they go well beyond the call of the gospel. In 1QH, or the Thanksgiving scroll, this is one of the scrolls they found in that community, it says this. I give thanks to you, Lord, because you did not make my lot fall in the congregation of falsehood. Nor have you placed my regulation in the council of the hypocrites, but you have led me to your favor and forgiveness. The Babylonian Talmud, Barakot, says this. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, that you have set my portion with those who sit in Bet HaMidrash, in the house of interpretation. And you have not set my portion with those who sit on street corners. No, for I rise early for words of Torah, and they rise early for frivolous talk. I run, and they run too, but I run toward the life of the future world, and they run to the pit of destruction. There's a very famous statement among the rabbis. You can find it in various places. And it says this, Blessed are you, O Lord, that you did not make me a heathen, a woman, or a brutish man. That's quite a posture, isn't it? So when Jesus gives this stereotype in Luke 18... What he's doing, his hearers are not saying, oh, wow, this is a profound new revelation. They're saying, (laughs) yeah, we know the type. We know the type. It's a familiar kind of person to anybody in Jesus' day, you know? This was, this attitude was pervasive. I suspect, I remember sitting last week on the Mount of Olives, and you're looking down at the Temple Mount in old Jerusalem. And Jesus once sat on that hill and looked down, and he wept. 
And you, you wonder, what was he weeping about specifically? And we know some of the things, but I think it's even more complex than what's recorded. He's looking down for sure, we could say, at people whom he loves who are totally missing the point. We don't want to be there. Where are we as a local church? What would our Portland neighbors say about our community? Would they say, yeah, those guys, they are confident of their own righteousness and they look down on others? Or would they say, those guys see themselves as people who deeply need God's mercy? And they welcome anyone into the, in the entire community. They welcome them to be in fellowship so that they can do the same and seek the mercy of God. What would our neighbors say of us? The tax collector has no confidence in himself. He puts all of his confidence in God, and he is at the bottom of the social ladder. He is a greedy, money-hungry traitor. I mean, this is rot gut. He is the lowest of the low. He's not unlike in their day their impression of the Samaritan woman. But it's really interesting to look at how Jesus, pay close attention to the way that Jesus is, to think about what he's really good at and what really makes him tick. And one of Jesus' great skills is his ability to read a culture, to look at a culture and, say, and see the hierarchies that we create. Here's who's deemed worthy. Here's who's acceptable. Here's who we respect. Here's who we don't care about at all. And he looks at those hierarchies, and I can't find anywhere where he congratulates us on those. And his parables seem to often overturn them. Maybe because of a little truth that Paul records in his letter to the Romans, we have all sinned. We are all wrong. We are all a far cry away from the glory of God. And in that sense, there is no legitimate hierarchy. We're all in the same boat, and we're all desperate for God's mercy. He looks at our systems, and he says, yeah, you've got it all upside down. Is the tax collector guilty of theft and robbery? Sure, he totally is. There's no doubt about it. Jesus is not saying, hey, if you love me, then go ahead and be a robber. It doesn't matter. Choose your own adventure. No, this guy is guilty, but he knows it. He can see it. And unlike the Pharisee, he recognizes his condition before God, and he genuinely confesses it. Instead of claiming righteousness, claiming that he's all right, he's got it all dialed in, I'm correct. The tax collector is saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am not correct. I'm far from it. He sees himself as one who needs God. The Pharisee sees himself as one who can be thankful that he is not like people who need God. How often do we think of the other person, oh man, that guy really needs Jesus. That's an eerily familiar thing to say. It's, and it's very similar to saying, thank you God that I am not like those people. Jesus wants us to imagine a world we're the least desirable people of our culture and society. Those whom we identify as sinners can repent right alongside you and I and turn to the God that all of us are desperate for. 
He wants us to imagine a world where those who see themselves as the best and the most correct, the most righteous and the most biblical of all, they're shown for what they are and their elitism is condemned. This is the world he imagines us to see. He wants us to imagine a world where a willingness to admit the hard-hitting, painful truths about ourselves is good and honorable, and it's a source of the beginning of life. Where we can say, have mercy on me, O God, a person who does not have your Bible all neatly figured out and perfectly interpreted. A world where the patient and humble person is honored. A world where the self-congratulating about our achievements is over. Where the self-congratulations about our correctness is utterly ignored. Now here's the best part and the most uncomfortable where we wish that Jesus hadn't told the story. If you're anything like me, okay, you're gonna catch yourself thinking something like this. Good grief, Pharisee. What the heck is wrong with you? How could you possibly be so dumb, dense? You're so arrogant, Pharisee, man. You're so wrong. Thank you, God, that I am not like that Pharisee. <laughs> you know? God, God, Jesus, our God, through this parable, shows us. He proves to us, because we all thought that. He proves to us that we sit in the same boat. I think that's pretty clever, isn't it? Jesus is, he's a smart guy. He really is. This parable works to put us in our correct place. And if we are paying attention, we have one legitimate response and one only. Have mercy. Oh, God, we really need you. We're sinful. Can you put the slide up for me, Steve? Here's a slide. Notice, churches and Christian movements through history. It starts at 1 AD, nice and simple. Spreads it out. This is where our church came along and finally got the Bible right. Jesus is so lucky to have us. I think we're laughing a little bit because we recognize the foolishness in this. God is waking up. I believe this. You cannot, you don't, you do a cursory glance at the churches in our country and the world. I think he is waking up one evangelical church after another throughout our whole nation, and I am 100% confident that he is saying to us at Central Bible right now, your doctrinal statement reveals something. Look very carefully at the attitude buried inside of it. I believe that. You can take the slide down now, Steve. Have you ever thought about the fact that because of our required doctrinal position, C.S. Lewis could not be a member here? I mean, we quote that guy all the time. I love that author. I know that he has theological things that I disagree with. But I tell you what, if he was in the room, I would be very happy to worship with C.S. Lewis and love Jesus and our neighbors together. Francis Schaeffer could not be a member here. According to our doctrinal statement, St. Augustine... Luther, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, you name it. You just run right down the line of some of the most formidable saints in the history of our church. Our doctrinal statement would keep them outside of that. And not just that, but any attitude 
that says our specific little narrow nuanced way of thinking is the only correct way. We as a community can eradicate that false belief from our community if we work together on it. So changing a doctrinal statement at the end of the day really is a small thing, isn't it? That's, that's not our win or our lose. I, I suspect most of us in this room don't even really know what it says. <laughs> but I would like to move to a place where we do know what it says, where we believe altogether what it says, and to do that, I think it has to be the most core statement of belief in Jesus Christ that we can get it down to. That kind of statement that ties us in with the historic church instead of setting us apart from. Where we can say with all traditions of Christianity and all of the different sort of divisions, we're one with you because of Jesus. We're one with you because we love you as brothers and sisters. We are not so puffed up in our own interpretive capacities that we think we're better than you. No, have mercy on us, oh God, because we're all in the same boat together. That's why we are proposing to this congregation that we change these things. That's why we've chosen to replace our current self-authored statement with one that all the traditions of Christianity have been using for more than 1,700 years to describe what we believe as Christians to be the most important core beliefs about Jesus. So what I want to say is our doctrinal statement will simply be the Bible. And then we will make a public declaration as a statement of our core belief, and I'm going to read it to you now. This is the thing that makes us distinctive Christians as opposed to people who worship Allah or Buddha or other gods or so forth. I think there is a major distinction we have to make with, with a robust pride in Christ and his gospel. So we're never going to shrink back from the Christianity, the distinctiveness of Christ and his gospel. That stays as robust as we can possibly make it but we're going to stop distinguishing ourselves from other believers along the lines of smaller, more nuanced interpretations. I want you to notice how it places Father, Son, and Spirit at the core of everything, and it emphasizes the supremacy of Christ as the true God, a true human, and our true Savior. Okay? I'm going to read this statement to you now. For we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. That's what we believe in. That's pretty core. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, this is through the Son, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
He will come again with the glory to, lo- to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's small c, Catholic. And I think it's okay to have that word in there. It doesn't hurt us to learn new vocabulary. One, one holy Catholic and apostolic. That means one church around all of the world and through time. We belong to one church. It doesn't say the Roman Catholic Church. You got me there? So we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Even right there at the end, notice, there's lots of different ways to think about how the end times will play out. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, all the different ones, tribulation, da 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 This doesn't disregard any of them. But it gets at the heart of what matters the most, which is we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. You know, wherever you stand on the nitpicking, we're all in that boat. And I love that about this statement. In terms of core Christian doctrine, that's where we're at. So hopefully in this time I've had with you now, you can see the attitude that we as an elder and pastor team want to lead our congregation away from wherever it comes up. And we're going to do so out of an extreme sense of love for you, wanting to strengthen and build up everybody in this room. That's the goal. And we're going to continue moving in that direction. Now, I have lots of other details and things that we can continue to talk about in in the days and weeks to come. But this is the core vision behind what we're trying to do. I love you guys. I'm going to pray with you now, and then we'll close. Jesus, I ask that you would have mercy on us, for we are not correct about everything. We despise and we hate sin wherever we see it in the culture and in our neighbors, even in the other people of our families, and yet we are slow to acknowledge sinfulness in ourselves. Please forgive us. And my prayer is that you would strengthen each man and woman and child in this room this morning. Help us to see and believe your forgiveness is real. Help us to see our fellow believers and our neighbors in the way that you do. And God, I'll speak on behalf of our whole community here when I say that we are committed to you and to you alone. If you are willing to continue being patient with us, and if you're willing to continue forgiving us when we need it, and we truly believe that you are willing And we're going to continue to do the best we can to live according to the reality of your kingdom in the ways that you have shown us to live through your word. Have mercy on us. God, strengthen us. And continue to lead us in this world. We love you. And we totally trust you. Amen.